Welcome to the American Meteorological Society's podcast series on careers in the atmospheric and related sciences. I'm Kelly Savoy, and I'm here with Jason Emanuel, and we will be your hosts. Our podcast series will give you the opportunity to step into the shoes of an expert working in weather, water, and climate sciences. We're excited to introduce today's guest, Marshall Shepard, Georgia Athletic Association Distinguished Professor of Atmospheric Sciences and Geography at the University of Georgia in Athens, Georgia. Welcome, Marshall. Thanks so much for joining us. Hey, guys. Thanks for having me. Marshall, could you tell us a little bit about your educational background and what sparked your interest in meteorology? Well, what sparked my interest in meteorology, surprisingly, was a honeybee. (laughs) I was stung by one when I was catching them in my yard when I was a young kid. I thought I wanted to be an entomologist as a kid and got stung by one and realized after almost dying that I'm highly allergic to bee stings. And so... I was coming up on a science project in the sixth grade and realized I needed a a different plan, a plan B, if you will, pun intended. And so I went uh, with a weather uh, project, can a sixth grader predict the weather? And I made weather instruments out of things around the house and um, made a little weather model for my little town, Canton, Georgia. And uh, and so that's kind of how it all began. I, I won the science fair, went on to district. And from that point on, I knew I wanted to be a meteorologist, but I never even then, I never wanted to be a TV meteorologist or even a forecaster. I was always more interested in the how and why of the weather. And so that's what uh, started uh, getting me to research schools in the South that were good in meteorology. And I discovered Florida State University and uh, went there for my bachelor's and master's degree, 91 and 93. I went away for a year to work and then went back and did my PhD. Cool. So after attaining your degrees, what was your first job in the field? And how did you end up where you are now? Well, it's interesting. I, I, there's a little story that relates to the AMS because I, I always value the AMS contributions to my career. Um, I, AMS started when I was in my master's program. They started the uh, AMS Industry Fellowship Program. And uh, I happened to be in the first class or cohort of, of fellowship recipients back in, I believe, 93. Uh, I, I was uh, funded. My fellowship was uh, sponsored by a, an aerospace company at that time called TRW. And so I, I'm always grateful for that initial funding from the AMS and TRW. But I, I went to work out of my master's at a, at a small contractor to NASA called SSAI. They, you know, in the Washington, D.C. area, they have these various what they call Beltway Bandits, these companies that contract to the federal agencies. And so they were essentially one of those. Uh, but then eventually I, I got hired on as a, a meteorologist at, at NASA, a civil servant, a federal employee, worked there for a while and realized they had some pro- programs that would allow you to apply and go back to do your PhD or go back to school. And, you know, it's a fairly older workforce at NASA, so a lot of people didn't apply. They were already sort of settled in, but I was fairly young at that point and didn't have any kids, wasn't married. I said, hey, I'll I'll apply for this. I, I got it and was able to go back and do my doctorate. Nice. Could you describe your position at NASA or what you did there? Well, early on, I was really more in a support scientist role. I was a young scientist, you know, particularly before I got my PhD. But once I got the PhD, uh, I became sort of a, a scientist where you're driving my own research agenda and, you know, writing grant proposals to NASA to support my research, which at that time was mainly focused on urban climate and rainfall effects. I was also involved with the Tropical Rainfall Measuring Mission or TRIM. And then after TRIM ran its course, NASA realized it needed a new satellite mission at 
to measure rainfall from space. And so it started thinking about this mission called the Global Precipitation Measurement or GPM mission. So I, I was asked to be the deputy project scientist for that mission. So in that role, I was working with scientists and engineers and the community uh, at large, also our Japanese partners at the Japanese Space Agency to develop this mission that met science needs, but also could be engineered to do so. Uh, I'm proud to say that satellite is in orbit now and taking great measurements, uh, data for rainfall, for weather prediction, uh, assessment of hurricanes, and for climate uh, diagnostics as well. So um, the really neat thing about being a scientist at NASA is uh, it's part research, it's part um, mission and program development, it's part service and outreach. I did a lot of outreach uh, through doing television on Today Show or national television or briefing Congress or whatever it took. So it really allowed me to diversify my skill set. I, I, I like to say that I'm a scientist and now a professor, but I'm not really typical of either of those, if you will. I mean, what, what people have in their, their mind is what a scientist looks or dresses or thinks like or a professor. I, I, I try to deliberately shatter those narratives. So once you got your PhD, did you know that you wanted to go into teaching? Well, and you know, the nice thing about being a professor is like, I, I never wanted to be a professor or a teacher at all. And I honestly, it's going to sound odd. I, I am, but I don't actually think of myself as a teacher at all, and, you know, even though I do teach. But, you know, at a place like University of Georgia and the major universities, professors actually don't teach that much, uh, quiet as kept. Hmm. Maybe one or two courses. It's, it's, you know, when I tell people I'm a professor, the first question that comes out of their mouth is, oh, what do you teach? But, you know, the reality is we're, you know, we don't actually teach as much as people think. We certainly do teach, but, you know, I, I may teach one or two courses a semester at most. You know, research one or research driven universities are very much focused on that. And so, you know, a, a good chunk of what we do involves, you know, research involves uh, acquiring multi-million dollar grants and advising our doctoral and master's students and publishing papers in the peer review literature and coming to AMS meetings and publishing new results and those types of things. So, you know, the teaching is just a small part of a much larger portfolio of what professors do. So even when I came to the university, you know, I was like, well, you know, I don't know. I've never taught. I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm coming here because I'm a scientist and I can continue to do my research. But, you know, as I've taught, I mean, I've, I guess I'm sort of good at it. I've won a couple of universities uh, top teaching awards. So, um, you know, I kind of backed my way into it. Uh, I'm, I'm not trained as a teacher at all or an educator, but, it, you know, it comes along with the territory, I guess. Well, that's very interesting because I'm sure a lot of people just assume that, like you said, professors at universities, you know, they, they just teach classes most of the time and do a little bit of research, but it almost sounds like it's flipped. Like you teach a couple of classes and... Well, I think it depends, Kelly, on where you are also. I'm at a major research university now. There are smaller universities or liberal arts colleges or more teaching and intensive universities where the professor may teach four classes a semester or something like that. But the, the reality is in, a, in an environment like I am at at a University of Georgia or a Florida State or Penn State. Um, some professors may teach as little as one course per year. Uh, so it, it, it just honestly depends on the where you are. But th this University of Georgia is a major research one level university, as many of our peer and aspirational institutions are. So, yes, yeah, just a common misconception. I even see it among the students because I think many students that come here just have the perception of their teachers in high school because they just see them teaching four or five classes all day. Where right. at a university, you know, we're doing a lot of other things, one of which is teaching. But 
in some cases, it's not even the majority of the time spent. Mm-hmm. So looking at your career and your education, did you have any mentors that provided you with guidance to sort of, you know, help you construct the path that made you so successful today? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you know, some of the names are usual suspects in the AMS world. Dr. Warren Washington, I hold up as a very important mentor of mine. Uh, he, when I was a young grad student, invited me to spend some time with him at uh, UCAR, NCAR, um, where he gave me so many words of wisdom just during that four or five days that I visited mm-hmm. him that I even now pass along to some of my own grad students about just balancing your expectations, becoming the best expert you can in your science field first before people start asking you to do many other things and get you distracted. You know, those are things that I value. Warren Washington, by the way, was the first African-American president of the AMS. And he was actually one of the first persons I reached out to when I was asked by Keith Sider uh, to consider running for the AMS. My, and, you know, I, I, he was one of the first emails I <laughs> sent because I knew he had, he had this experience. Um, you know, I, you know, Dr. Franco and Audi at NASA, that was a very important part of my career. He, he really gave me some of my, uh, also an AMS president, I should mention, um, he gave me you know, my first opportunity to be a, a NASA scientist and has been a very strong advocate for my career from the start. I remember even a time when he asked me to run or be on the AMS executive council or executive committee. And I think people were like, well, he's too young or he's not ready yet. And oh, I think Franco was a big advocate of me then. And so I appreciate him. So, you know, my mom was a big uh, source of, of mentorship as well as parentalship because uh, she was a mm-hmm. single parent. But yet, you know, coming up and nurturing my interest in science and sports and all of the other things that I did, um, I never felt like I didn't have any opportunities to do anything. I mean, I did everything, 4-H, model UN, played tennis and basketball at school, um, pretty much beta club, pretty much whatever was going on, I was in it. And so she found the time. And the reason I'm bringing that up is because I think it's very important for any young scholars listening to this or young professionals listening to this to try to develop and be as well-rounded as possible. I work in a world of science and academia and highbrow ivory tower-ness, but at times I find many of my colleagues to be a little one-dimensional in that (laughs) regard, and it's so important to be well-rounded. And so that's, that's, I think some of those things as I was coming along really helped me in that regard. So so speaking of being well-rounded, Beyond the required math and science courses that you took, were there other um, courses that you found helpful in your career or do you wish you would have taken now that you've gone along your career path and know more than you did when you were in school? No, I think I, I think I had a pretty good feel for it. I mean, I, I, I knew I never wanted to be a TV meteorologist, like forecasting on a, a TV station every day or something like that. But in college, I still took a public speaking course. Uh, I, I, I really honed my craft of writing. Uh, I'm, a, I'm a contributor to Forbes magazine today. And, you know, I, I get a lot of compliments on my these little 800 word articles I write for Forbes uh, monthly. Uh, and, you know, people compliment me on those. And it's like you have a way of writing that really reaches people, even though you're, it's, you're talking about very technical mm-hmm. things. And so I, I took pride in that. And I think a lot of that came from, you know, being able to take speaking, public speaking classes and uh, writing classes and the like. I mean, I, you know, I'm very comfortable speaking in public now. I, I, in fact, I quite enjoy it. I don't get nervous at all in front of a t- TV camera or when I'm speaking to, you know, 10,000 people or what I've had the pleasure of being a commencement speaker twice now, once at Florida State and once at UGA. And those are v- large arenas full of people, but uh, I'm, I was very comfortable. In fact, I enjoyed the moment quite a bit. So I think those things helped. I mean, of course, all you hit the nail on the head, Kelly. Meteorology is a very, 
quantitative science. And so as a director of a major program myself at a university, I have a lot of students that are interested in meteorology, but I sit down in my office and say, well, how's your calculus and your partial differential equations and your physics? Because those are what you need to be able to get through in order to get through uh, the AMS certified meteorology curriculum and atmospheric sciences curriculum that's on the books. Now, having said that, there are certainly opportunities and career pathways now within the field of weather, climate, and water that may not require all of the math and rigor that those degrees require. I mean, I mean, a bit, but if you've had a few meteorology or environmental sciences or climate courses, I mean, I think there are emerging opportunities uh, throughout the public and private sector and uh, to still scratch that weather itch that you may have. But even if you just didn't want to get through those partial differential equations. <laughs> Right. And, and, you know, public speaking, that doesn't come easy to a lot of people. So that's definitely some good advice. When you were talking about speaking in front of a whole bunch of people, I, I swear <laughs> my stomach did a little flip flop, like, oh, no. <laughs> so um, you're part of personality driven, too. You're right. Yeah, it's one of those things where you can certainly take classes. There are things like, uh, you know, public speaking and oration classes in school. But the, even out when you're not in school, if you're a young professional out listening now, there, there are organizations and activities like Toastmasters that can help you hone your skills if you still are have a little discomfort speaking publicly. But, but I, I will say that some of the things uh, related to those types of um, you know, abilities are just sort of sort of natural personality things too. I, I have a personality where it, you know, it just doesn't bother me, whereas my wife initially is very uncomfortable speaking in front of people. She's gotten better over the years and is actually quite good at it now. You know, she's a Girl Scout leader and has to do those types of things. So. So it sounds like you balance a lot of different responsibilities, but what is your typical day on the job like? Oh, it's not, a, I, you know, so it's a question I get often and it's not, not, not very easy because I think every day is quite different. Um, so for example, today on a Wednesday, I mean, I was taping my Weather Geeks podcast at the Weather Channel and then I came over to the university to talk with you all. And then I have a an all hands meeting with the students in my program this afternoon. So um, not getting too much teaching or research done today. Tomorrow is Thursday. So I'll have a have a class, my satellite meteorology class tomorrow. I think I have a couple of media interviews concerning the hurricane. Dorian, that as we're taping, is actually happening in the Caribbean Ocean right now. I'm certain that a few more of those will pop up because that's kind of a real-time current event type thing. So you just be prepared for that and, you know, pop over to our UGA studios if that's mm -hmm. needed. You know, I'll, I'll try to get some research in or, 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 you know, got a couple of proposals coming up that we're developing for future funding for our future research projects. I'll spend a little time on those. So, you know, each day for me is a little bit different. One of the things that I told some a group of young professionals at AMS at a leadership workshop this summer is that Although the day might look different every day, one of the things that I have done, and I've done this for many years now in my career, is that I know that certain times of the day, I do certain things better. So I don't do things randomly in the day. I actually have certain parts of the day that I align for writing. Mm -hmm. For example, I write best between about 5.30 in the morning and 8. So I know that's my most productive writing period. So I usually will write then. Uh, usually between 10 and 12 is when I do most of my sort of interactions with my students. After lunch is when I really try to think and catch up on scientific literature and just do sort of more research-oriented activities. So I think it's important that all of us think about what we do best at certain times of the day. So sort of be in tune with our own diurnal uh, tendencies and optimize uh -huh. to those. So is that what you like most about your job? Just say you get such a variety of things you get to do? 
Yeah. What I really like most about my job is it's, I don't feel like I, this is, you know, hopefully my dean or the president of the university or my department head are not really listening to this, but I think they would even agree with it themselves. But I don't really feel like I have a boss. I mean, university professors are sort of free agents. We're, we right. kind of do our thing. <laughs> you know, no one's sort of telling me what I need to do every day or checking off a box. Well, I need you to, you kind of make your own agenda and make your own day. And it's a very flexible position that allows me to you know, do the things that I do, whether it's AMS related with the Weather Channel, Forbes or otherwise, as long as you're advancing the university's mission of teaching, research and scholarship and service, uh, you really are very flexible. And I think that's what I love. And candidly, it was somewhat that way at NASA. It was a little more rigid and mission oriented, but I mean, I'm blessed to be able to work in this regard. I'd probably struggled in a position where I had to kind of check a clock and just check in and check out and account for my position and whereabouts at all times. That would probably drive me crazy at this point. What is the most challenging thing about your job right now? Uh, I think the most challenging thing about my job is, and it's not so much my job, but it's just what I've taken on. It's just the whole misinformation and around climate change and climate science and what we as scientists who actually, you know, are experts in this area and have studied this area and published in it, you know, what we have to deal with in terms of the perceptions and the special interest in the agenda that we face and frankly, criticism and attacks at times concerning, you know, that the particular topical areas that we, we work in, you know, we're in the social media and the Wikipedia university and Twitter tech degrees that are out there, uh, the consumption of science and the Dunning-Krugerism, the Dunning-Kruger effect where people think they know more about your field than you do. I find that an ever-increasing challenge. Unfortunately, you're seeing yeah. it even in the highest levels of, of even our, our leadership in this country too. So it's a challenge. So over the course of your career, and you've done so many different activities, what's the most exciting thing that's ever happened to you? Oh, wow. That's a tough question. I, I, I you know, I've had a lot of moments that just really check off a box for me. I think getting the presidential early career award, PCASE award at the White House in 2004 from President Bush ranks up there pretty high. I think uh, when I found out I became an AMS fellow, that was personally very fulfilling for me, as well as receiving the Landsberg Award for my work in urban climate, because those are really kind of nods to my research and my scientific career, because a lot of people know me as, you know, someone that does a lot of media and outreach and those types of things. And yeah, I mean, I, you know, people know Weather Geeks, for example, they know I write for Forbes, but what I'm most always proud of is my scientific research. And so to attain those honors, uh, the PKs, the Fellow, and the uh, Landsberg Award from the AMS, those were sort of rubber stamps on my my scientific career. So I think those will be things. I have to say one, one really cool thing, though. Uh, I received the Captain Planet Foundation's Protector of the Earth Award. If you don't know what Captain Planet... Oh, my Planet goodness. Is, yeah. <laughs> That's awesome. Yeah, Captain Planet Foundation is a foundation that was started by Ted Turner, who owns CNN and many other things. Many people are familiar with Ted Turner and his foundation does a lot of work. And so several years ago, I received the Protector of the Earth Award, which is a really neat award. And there was a at the awards banquet, uh, the other award recipient was Dr. Jane Goodall, who I'm sure most people know as well. She received another of their awards that they give annually as well. So it was neat to be recognized with such a high honor and also to get to share a stage with someone as legendary as Jane Goodall. Oh, that's, that's, you have a lot of things that you can be proud of. That's for sure. Those are all awesome. Yeah. So you'd kind of mentioned this before, like you get to 
decide how you manage your own time. So would you say your job allows for a good work-life balance? It, it does if you allow for it to. And I, I see a lot of my colleagues um, sort of fall into this, oh, I have to be here until 10 p.m. Or, you know, I, I have never been that person. I'm just I'm just going to be candid with you. I work hard. And I like I said, I optimize the times that I work. But I it's weird because I'm probably the most one of, if not the most productive faculty member in my department in terms of grants money brought in each year and a number of publications. I'm always near the top. Yet my work style is very different. I don't, I'm not in my office 20 hours a day or 80 hours a week type of thing. So I, I think it's very important. I have a 12 year old and a 15 year old. You know, when I leave here, you know, I try to sort of really be at their football practices and take them to you know, games or go to their curriculum night meetings at school. I'm right there. I mean, I don't I don't want to be a passive part of their upbringing. I'm right there. And that's very important to me. Uh, I limit my travel for a lot of different reasons. One, because I just hate to fly. And I'm also trying to watch my carbon footprint issues. But two, because I want to be here in these formative years for my children. So, Marshall, you served as president of the AMS in 2013. Could you tell us a little bit about that experience? Yes, it was a very surprising email from Keith Sider saying that I'd been nominated by the nominating committee to run. Originally, I didn't even think I was going to do it until I talked to some mentors. And they were like, yeah, you, you have to do it, almost do it. You know, it, it would mean so much to so many people. And more importantly, we think you would do a good job at it. And so, you know, I said, OK, I'll do it because I didn't think I'd win because I was running against a very highly respected colleague who I just thought would win. <laughs> and then I won. And I was like, OK, well, I guess this is real. It was a nice experience because, it gets, you know, I had a pretty good feel and understanding of the AMS because I'd served on the council beforehand. But to, to be able to come in and try to use your little one and a half to two years as president-elect and president to sort of help a society that you very much care about. Uh, in its own ways. You know, one of my primary goals as AMS president was to sort of break down the the myth of what an AMS president is to the community. I wanted to be very accessible. I wanted the society to be very accessible. I think during the time I was president, I was very adamant about moving the society into the social media age and thinking about blogs and those types of things. I came in at a time when the AMS was just releasing its climate change statement. So I had to sort of really navigate the the fact mm -hmm. that there were a small per percentage of our membership that didn't like our statement or what it was saying. And so I had to kind of deal with those right. issues. So, you know, I, I think, you know, it's a it's an executive level position. And um, I found that I was able to navigate it well, thanks in part to many of you all that the support of the AMS staff was amazing during that time and also mm -hmm. the council. Yeah, and so I, I think we moved the needle on a few things during my tenure. And how did you become involved with Weather Geeks? How, how did that all start? Well, that's an interesting question. I, you know, I, after my term as president, you know, I'm back in Georgia. I get an email from uh, a colleague from Weather Channel asking for lunch one day. Was, uh, he's actually involved in AMS too, Matt Sitkowski. So I knew him before the hand. And so, you know, how <laughs> foolish of me it would be to turn down free lunch at the Cheesecake Factory. So, um, <laughs> I, I up. And so we, we had lunch and, you know, they were telling me about this idea that they just had, like a group of producers there and meteorologists at the Weather Channel about a talk show about weather that kind of a meet the press, face the nation type talk show. 
about weather and related topics, just where you just geek out on these topics. And so it was like, you know, you have a very well-known name in the field of meteorology and you you kind of know how to come across on television. So would you be interested in hosting it? You wouldn't have to be the sole host. Uh, they told me that we'd have one of our uh, on-camera meteorologists kind of be the the managing host, if it will, kind of getting us in and out of commercials and kind of keeping the conversation going. It was envisioned that I would be the expert host just sort of there with our guests. But after about a two or three episodes, apparently I kind of masqueraded and sort of the, that I knew what I was doing and that, that people kind of resonated with it. And so they just made me the host flat out. And so, you know, we had a good run. We did about four years or so of the TV show on Sunday afternoons. We got over 100 episodes. But then with the changing sort of landscape of television, you know, they love the Weather Geeks brand and it actually was pretty popular, but they wanted to extend it because they wanted to reach the 18 to 40 year old crowd. And they don't really watch TV anymore. So, you know, we decided right. to convert Weather Geeks to a podcast, which is what we're doing now. We're well over into our second year of the podcast. So between the television show and the podcast, we're sort of six years running now. So what kind of topics did you usually cover? Like if you could just give a couple of examples. Well, well, today we talked about managing risk uh, as it relates to things like hurricanes and other natural disasters. But we had a talk, uh, my guest last week was uh, Art Smith, who's a world-renowned chef who's cooked for President Obama and Lady Gaga and has nine or 10 restaurants, I think, around the nation. We're talking about the relationship between weather and food and how weather and climate impacts his restaurant operation. So the topics are, can vary. I mean, the, the one of the beauties of the podcast is that we it's a 40-minute podcast. And you can find it out there on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher or, or WeLoveWeather.tv. Um, the TV show was a 30-minute TV show, but by the time you took out the commercials and the Weather Channel weather on the right. eight segments, we only had about 17 minutes of actual time. So it always felt a little rushed. The podcast really allows us to take deep dives into a host of topics from weather or climate. Huh. You know, we, we had Dr. Jane Goodall on the show. We've had the EPA uh, administrator under President Obama. We had the President Obama's science advisor. We've had NFL football players on talking about weather and how it impacts the NFL game. So just anything yeah, that's great. that we can literally geek out on about weather and climate, we'll do it. So are there any other professional development opportunities or like certifications that you pursue that you could tell us about? No, my PhD is pretty much my certification. <laughs> But um, you know, I will say that, um, you know, Keith Sider always and likes for AMS presidents and others to get the CCM, the Certified Consulting Meteorologist degree. Uh, I never did, actually, because frankly, I get calls all of the time for that kind of thing anyhow, even though I don't have my CCM because I, I was being a little bit casual with that. But the reality is, I think people, when they see that you have a PhD, they right. assume you're an expert. So um, right. they, they assume that, that is credentialing. <laughs> so I, I've never really felt a need to get the CCM. But if, if you're someone perhaps that wants to consult or do weather consulting or climate consulting and maybe you don't have the terminal degree, I think the CCM is a great sort of pathway for many people. Now, if you go into the broadcast field, I think some kind of a CBM, the Certified Broadcast Meteorology, the CBM that the AMS issues or perhaps the NWA seal uh, is a must, actually. And frankly, the CBM is the gold standard. So if you're going into these, when, when TV stations call me about 
a student from my program that they want to hire, one of the first questions they ask is, can they get the CBM? And that's important because in order to take the test to get a CBM from the AMS, you have to have gone through a program that has a certified AMS certified curriculum. And so you know, I, I warn you to be careful if you're listening, because there are there are some. Pro- well, I, won't, I don't want to say that, but there you just make sure the program you're going through at the end of the day, if your goal is to get the CBM, that program has the curriculum that will allow you to do so. So, Marshall, we always ask our guests one last fun question at the end of each of our podcasts. What is your all-time favorite movie? Ah, that's an easy one. Raiders of the Lost Ark. I mean, always has been. I can, uh, re- Although Coming to America is a close second. Uh, with Eddie Murphy. And I, I hear there's a second version coming out in a, in a year or so. But no, I've always loved Indiana Jones, uh, Raiders mm-hmm. of the Lost Ark. Now, as they got deeper into the franchise, some of the movies stunk. But the first one was always like... Yeah, great. the first one. Yeah, the first one. Yeah, the great. first one was great. Yeah, that's that was always. I'm dating <laughs> myself because there are probably some listeners, younger listeners, like, what the heck is Raiders of the Lost Ark? But... Um, I, I really love that movie. Uh, you know, I, I, I've watched it, but yeah, Coming to America is definitely a close second. I mean, that's just, it's a, I mean, I mean, like, oh, that one's you know, hilarious. It's a hilarious movie. And I see something different every time I watch it. Like I, like I said, I, I'm one of these people that like, you know, I'm, and I think Kelly and others have met me personally. You know, I'm I'm a, I'm a scholar and I guess a, an accomplished scientist, but outside of work, I'm a pretty regular guy. So I'm not going to look at <laughs> movies that are like, that make me yeah. think too much. <laughs> I just want to be entertained. So. Right. And I, I can't tell you how excited I am that there's going to be a Coming to Absolutely. America sequel. That's going to happen in a year. I got to look. I got to look that up. <laughs> yeah, there were some media blitz about it recently, and you know, Eddie Murphy and Arsenio Hall and all of them are going to be in oh, it. So, awesome. yeah, I'm looking forward to that quite a bit, actually. Well, great. Thanks so much for joining us, Marshall, and sharing your work experiences with us. Oh no, no problem. I've really, I've really enjoyed it, I, and I'm glad I could help you all out. Well, that's our show for today. Please join us next time. Rain or shine.